Hi everybody, this is Webinars with Wendy. We've come back after a short break in July and I'm really excited to be starting them up again. Um, you Just remember that you can find all of the webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel and um, I have guests lined up now for the next couple of weeks. So be sure to join my mailing list at murdochmethod.com so that you get the email on the Sundays that have all the links to sign up for the webinars. Today my guest is uh, Tammy El Elkayam. Yes. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about being able to see more about what's going on with your horse. I've already had a little bit of a preview of Tammy's talk um, the other day, and it was so fascinating that I was really excited about this one. So I'm not going to waste a lot of time with an intro. I'm going to let Tammy give you her background before she dives into her PowerPoint presentation. And I think you're really going to enjoy this webinar. So welcome, Tammy. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a, an awesome opportunity to be able to reach more people and share my passion. Um, yeah, kind of tell us how you got here. I know you, you shared that with me the other day, and it was fascinating. And so I think people really okay. like to kind of know how we get where we get. So um, I started very far away from this. Uh, I have a degree in fine art painting. Um, I've done horses all my life because I get easily overstimulated visually, sound, everything is at a 10 volume and it's hard to differentiate. And horses have always allowed me to turn the volume down and turn the lights off and create that quiet. So I've always done horses, but I've never considered therapy. And when we moved to the U.S. in 2006, um, I wound up at this barn with a whole bunch of endurance riders who took me on Mr. Toad's wild rides. Um, and uh, Becky Hart actually took me to a Linda Tellington Jones clinic where I was there auditing for a day. And um, she was doing a little tea touches and I was playing with it. It was interesting. It was a fun day hanging out with horse people. And she said to me, you have really good hands. You should do something with that. And I was like, oh, okay. And I think maybe a month or so later, it's very serendipitous the way it all happened. A month or so later, uh, Jim Masterson came out to the barn and I asked if I could watch and he was very gracious and said, sure watch um and i kind of saw what was happening and i liked the correlation and at the time i'd just gotten a mare that was a little difficult and i played with that and so realized that it was kind of my thing and i was enjoying it and um started to do that and went through that program and then when i was done with that i thought huh i really would like to know more get more tools um and uh, becky tangents who you've had on said to me we need to go do this. Let's go do this. And I went, okay. So off I went to um, LA and met the probably most influential person that started this journey, uh, Dr. Sandra Hallett, who um, teaches cranial sacral uh, for equines and small animals through the Upledger Institute. And she really is a spectacular lady who um, really got the ball rolling. Um, but when I started there, it was very foreign to me, the whole, I don't get a lot of treatment, I don't like people touching me, and so the whole juju of cranial sacral was a little lost on me. Um, and then she talked in very anatomical terms, and I realized that I didn't know much. And that's when the drawing came in, and I would do a lot of drawing to help learn. 
Um, and Sandy would be like, why are you scribbling all over your book? I go, because I'm putting your words in the pictures um, <laughs> so that I can understand. Um, and so I've done all four of those and I love to TA for her because every time I go, I learn more. And if you're interested in learning cranial sacral therapy, she really is awesome because she teaches way more than that. There's a lot of neural and visceral stuff. So that was kind of the beginning of that. And then when I finished that, I was like, I want more. I'd like more tools. And I'd had a whole bunch of people that I knew had gone through the Blugen Institute and had become equine osteopaths. And so my kids went off to college and I went, oh, I got time, we can do this. <laughs> and so um, I started there. But the posting really started um, because I had a whole bunch of clients who couldn't see what I was talking about or couldn't understand the connections. And if something came up on a regular basis during a week, I would be like, oh, we'll just do a picture, write a little bit about it in a simple kind of way and put it out there for everybody that I treat to read. That's really how this started. It was very organic. Um, and now I just enjoy simplifying, you know, what's really complex anatomy so that every horse owner can go, hmm, maybe I need to look at this. Well, and I think that that's actually the, uh, one of the things that makes your work so unique is the art background that you have so that you can actually illustrate your points so clearly and, and yet simply like kind of boiling it down and here are the things to look at and so that they're very understandable. And, and so that's really, um, you know, I was following your posts on Facebook, but then also your name kept coming up through some of the, my other guests and oh, I okay. <laughs> follow, you know, I listen to my guests and I listen to the names they mention, And then I start ferreting around and going, well, maybe this is somebody I should have on my webinar. So um, that's part of the process uh, is to keep the feelers out for, for those names. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's, like I said, it's really an interesting path that you've had. And what I love about it is that, uh, that there's all these touch points that we all seem to have in common, whether yeah. that's Linda or Jim or the cranial sacral work or, you know, um, Monique, you mentioned Monique before earlier to me, um, that there, there is, um, this group of like-minded people and yet we're all kind of in different places and working on our own things. And so the tendency is to kind of be in our little isolated little spheres um, and not either realize that there's other people out there similar and or not be able to get that information out to where it's to a larger audience. So that's just fantastic that we have this, you know, for me, the pandemic has provided this opportunity to create a, a, a place where we can get more information out to people and ultimately help more horses because that's what it's about. And that so, really um, is what it's about. Yeah. So uh, I think that's um, great for the intro. And why don't we just dive right into your presentation because I know you have so much information there. Okay. So um, let me do this. Wait. Let me see if it'll work. Uh, uh oh. Uh oh. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Wait, wait, wait. Does that work? Yay! I'm so technically challenged, it's not even funny. Okay. <laughs> All right, so um, I'm going to try, I'm going to attempt to put Everest in a carry-on luggage. That's kind of how I feel about this. So I'm going to kind of build it up slowly so you guys get a concept and then I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Otherwise, it's going to take all day and each of these topics can take all day. So I hope I've kind of done it in a concise way. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to look at today, the art of seeing a different way to look at the horse. 
the art of abstract, layers of the horse, the art of observation, assessment, the art of seeing patterns, natural asymmetry, and the art of reading fascial lines, compensation patterns. And they all kind of build on each other. And as we go through today, um, you will see that. So one of the first things you are taught in art school is, um, you know, and I think maybe that's why it's easier for me to see things because I don't look at things the way other people do. So one of the first things you're taught in art school um, is to stop identifying objects and instead see things as a scene, collection of lines, shadows, contours. So our brains tend to play tricks on us. Biology is, um, I don't know if lazy, let's say economical. And so our brain kind of goes, oh, it's a horse. And then all the horses start to look the same. So we have this kind of pre-imposed image of a horse. Um, and we superimpose that on what we're seeing. So people don't see like a camera. We go through life anticipating what we're going to see and often miss the result. So I like this picture because there's a lot out there in Facebook that, you know, or other places where you have these two things images and here that it's not quite so clear, but um, there's a lot of experiments that have been done uh, in art schools about how artists look at things and how other people look at things and artists tend to look a lot more at negative space and they don't focus on the main object. We look more around like the way the eyes travel. They've done for the brain, I guess, what you want to do for the horses on the pads. And there's some very interesting results. So I think in order to help our horses, the first thing we need to do is learn to see, to really look at what we're looking at. So when I look at a horse, I used to do um, a front view, a lateral view and a caudal view, and they would all have scribbles like that. And people would be like, um, what is that supposed to tell me? <laughs> and um, so in order to help my clients kind of understand what I was looking at and what I was seeing, I was trying to put things in a more bite-sized, um, simpler way of assimilating it. Um, because, you know, if you look at that, it doesn't mean anything to you. For me, all these things are very obvious. So how do we do that? So the art of abstract. So the concept of abstract is to simplify things and to make them a little less objective, right? And so we have this horse running here, which, you know, is kind of the basic of how you draw a horse. If you look at these circles and how they move, when things are complex in art, we look for basic shape, light, shadow, and negative space. We need to think of the horse in 3D and we need to consider all three axes and the fascial matrix. So that's a lot of things to consider when you're only looking at one side of the horse. And you and I talked about this yesterday or a couple of days ago, Wendy, when I said that um, I have farrier friends who go, people can see the asymmetry in feet, but they can't see it in the horse. And I always say that's simple because they can see all four feet in one visual view, but they can't see the entire horse in a visual view. And so, it's really important to kind of think 3D. I think most people still consider horses on a two-dimensional uh, concept. It's really important to remember your axes because that's how the body moves, right? So it always has to work around those axes. Those are the planes of motion. There is nothing else that the body can do beyond that. Um, so, I added this because last night I had a thing. Uh, within, three, within the 3D horse, there are layers. Each layer has a specific function. 
all layers are connected through a fascial matrix working around three axes. So we've had plenty of people talk about fascia and in the corner I have a little picture of the fascia. And then if you look at this kind of moving thing, this is to me what fascia does and it kind of all works together. You can't have, if you think three dimensional, you can't have one part of the matrix move without having it all be affected. Um, and so when I was trying to explain this to clients, they were having a hard time understanding that each level is separate, but then still connected. So if you look at the babushkas, and we all know about those dolls that kind of fit one into the other, um, if you think of each of these, and I've put them here in a kind of the buckets that I tell my clients, which is the brain and the central nervous system would be the smallest babushka that would go in the center. And then we have the visceral and organ system, and that would go into the next doll. And then the musculoskeletal system would go into the doll after that. And then we'd have the outside doll, which is your superficial fascia and dermis. But all those dolls are connected by this weird thing that's moving here, this fascia that kind of does each layer, but then also does them all together. So I hope that kind of helps understand, helps people understand how interconnected yet separate everything is. Okay, let's move on. So first of all, we have the brain and the central nervous system. So the brain dictates everything in the body. The brain's priority is to protect itself, stay upright, so orient itself in the surrounding. Food, sex, and safety. That's kind of like what it all comes down to. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and so you have to kind of keep that in mind when you look at any living creature. The brain wants to protect itself. And remember, I said the brain wants to be economic. So if you're like this, the brain is going to do whatever it needs to with the body so that it can be economic. Okay, do that again, because I had your little window closed so we could see your image. So, oh, so if, the, if your head is all like this, this is how you're going through life, which yep. a lot of horses tend to, yep. what their body will do is this. Because now my input is easier for the brain than here. Right. Um, and so neurological reflex of the brain dictates posture. So the brain does that. And... Um, you know, I'm going to talk more about this later, but the stomatognathic system uh, plays a part together with proprioceptive input, vestibular, ocular, somatosensory to create posture through the cerebellum. So basically, all those big words <laughs> mean that all the information from all the muscles, the feet, um, all those neuroreceptors that are out there, it all goes to the cerebellum, which I don't know if you can see my pointer, you can't. So if you look in the occiput, where that green bone is with the red writing, the occiput, you see that little squiggly bubble? That's the cerebellum. Wait a second, it seems that my pointer, no, you should be able to use your pointer. Uh, no, I can't see it. I don't know how I'm supposed to do that. See, uh, challenged. I don't want to press anything in case it disappears. Hey, yeah, don't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically, if you look in the occiput, that fuzzy kind of round thing at the end of the brain, it's written in green, so you can't really see. That's the cerebellum. Interestingly, it's where the skull meets the spinal cord. Um, and so that's kind of the center where all that information goes in and they compute whatever, the body computes whatever it needs to compute and it sends all the information out and that's how you are in space. <laughs> so, so Tammy, some people haven't been able to see what you demonstrated with your head. If okay. you can unshare your screen for all right. 
Let me do unshare. Wait, yeah, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, I need to get there. Here we go. Stop sharing. Where is it? Oh, oh no, no, no. Wait, let me go back. Let me see if I can unshare. It would be at the top of your screen. Take, you gotta yeah, it's, I'm trying to get, no, see, it won't let me stop share. Beep. Hang on. Nope. Wait, I'm going to stop it for you. Okay. There. Aha. <laughs> okay, can they see me? Because I can't see you. But okay. Yeah. So basically, if you're like this, right? If you have a head tilt. Yep. And your brain's working really hard to be here, but you're like this, your body is going to do that. So now my brain doesn't have to work so hard. My body's got to work a little harder, but my brain, who only cares about itself, really, is working quite good this way. So that's kind of the point. Sorry, couldn't share No, it's okay. It's a really important point because you'll see this in people and horses is yes. that, you know, because one of the classic things with riding instructors is they all are looking at their students with their head tilted. Right. They're standing in the middle of a circle and almost all of them have their head tilted. Oh, so I've been yelled at by Becky Hart many a times because she does centered riding like, look up, where are you going? Yeah. And so it's fascinating how we um, either orient our head in a certain way in order to see something or orient our body in order to organize our head. Right. So, yeah. Um, and I think that both are fascinating and interesting. And, and it's all about a way, maybe you can clarify this, but we're trying to perceive something. And so we organize in a way to try to make that easier. Um, but it's not necessarily simpler. No, it's not simpler, but we have to remember that the brain's priority is to protect itself and stay upright. And so if it needs to sacrifice, I guess, other things in order to do that, it will. Right. Because safety comes from being able to see, to be balanced in space, to know where you are in space. Right. And that's one of the things, um, I suffered from vertigo for many years and when I could feel it coming on and I could feel that instability, you, it's amazing how your nervous system becomes so uh, hypersensitive and yeah. because you know that you're not stable. And some of my students that I've had that tell me they have the most problems with their vestibular system are actually the most stable on the balance trail that I make because they have to pay attention. Like the average person- Wendy, who I lost you. Uh-oh, I'm Hello. still- <laughs> I can hear you. Uh-oh. I can hear you. Hang on. Let me see. Hello. Yeah, we're good. Can you I lost me? you. No, I have you. Yeah, there we go. Okay. I couldn't hear you for a minute. All right. Your internet connection is unstable. Well, I can't help that. No, and okay. we didn't lose you, so we're good. Okay. Um, but basically, it's just that the people who have to pay attention are usually better because they have to pay attention. It takes yes. more awareness to do other things. Yep. All right, cool. Let's head back to your slideshow. Okay, can you undo, because I'm only seeing my slide, so I can't even see you. So you'll um, have to undo whatever you're doing. Let's see, I got a cancel spotlight. Let's see, gallery view. That should have put you back. Nope. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay, I'll carry on while you're trying to figure that well, out. I, I think it's at your end. If you go up to your menu bar there and it says... I can't do anything, because you've like taken over as the host, so I can't. Let me do if I do escape. If I escape, will I lose you? <laughs> and you shouldn't because you're still co-host. There we go. Let me do play again, but I can't see you. That so, is... all right. 
I guess we'll just carry on like that. And yeah, but we don't have your screen. Hang on. <laughs> uh, all panelists. All right. Who? I just made it so you all panelists can share. If you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to share my screen. I, all I did was stop your screen share, but that should make it so that you can. Um, can you see your Zoom window? Hang on, let me go. Minimize on. your PowerPoint. Wait, hey, there you are. Okay, so do I reshare screen now? Yep. Share screen, do that. Hang on. Yes, share. Perfect. Okay, are we good? Yeah. Yay, we did it. All right. Awesome. Good job. Okay, sorry. Okay. Um, all right, next layer we're going to talk about is uh, the visceral and organ system. So it it's something that I've only recently kind of become more aware of or learn more of. So I knew there were connections, but, you know, when you're learning, you kind of learn in layers as well. Um, so the visceral and organ system, referring to the viscera of internal organs of the body, specifically those within the chest as the heart and lungs or abdomen as liver, pancreas, intestines. So I did this little drawing, which, um, you know, if we look at it, uh, and we can see that we have a hyoid and we have all that fascia that kind of goes down to the heart and the lungs. And then we have the pleura and the pericardium and the diaphragm and the peritoneal fascia. All those things are in the horse and they're interconnected and they're, you know, connected through nerves to the spine. And so when there is dysfunction, I think a lot of times it's kind of disregarded. When there is dysfunction in these things, it's going to affect the body in layers. So if this is your second babushka doll, right, it's going to be not closed properly, I suppose. I'm just trying to find an analogy, but you would have issues and those issues would translate through all the layers. Um, and so when we look at patterns and we look at things, I think it's important to understand in which doll the issue is um, and not just go, oh, it's a musculoskeletal issue. Well, maybe there is stuff beyond that. So I think it's really important to kind of, I always think from the inside out and I, um, I'm grateful to Sandy because she taught me so much about neurology that I always kind of go back to that and I go, okay, this is the, the central thing to everything. So we need to look at that before we look at everything else as it relates further out. So after that, we need to think about the muscular skeletal system. So the next doll up, most of the patterns we see in this layer are generated by muscular forces acting on a foundation of bony asymmetry. And so I'm going to show you the skull of this horse um, and its cervical spine later. But if you look at the pelvis, you can see how there is a twist in there. And we have one ilium that's higher than the other and one tubercoxae that's, you know, lower than the other. And you can see the shift in that pelvic room. Um, and what's interesting is if you look at these femurs, you can see that the articular surface, that's the top bit that's surrounded in a green line, is very different. So they're hitting the acetabulum very differently. And if you look at the condyles of those femurs, um, they're very different. And so, you know, when you have that, that's a fact. And yes, you could change it over time, um, but it's there. And so the horse will always return to that pattern. And we're going to talk more about how these patterns are expressed. 
And, uh, and just to, to bring out a point, there is yes. no perfectly symmetrical anybody. No, no, and we're going to get to that. <laughs> and you know what? Um, it's actually, you know, I always say there's asymmetry down to the cellular level. And um, if we were symmetrical, we would break a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just start with that. Okay. So this kind of hunt for symmetry is not the right attitude. Okay, so this is one that is really important for me to always convey to my clients, and that's the outside doll, because that's really what we see. We see the outside doll. So the superficial fascia and dermis. And um, skin is the largest organ in the body. Um, hair pattern, skin texture, and the feel of hair can give further information on what is happening with underlying layers. So what does that mean? Um, I have horses that um, I have a, a lovely fat halflinger who I love to death. And when I first met him, he used to lie down for me to work on him because it was too hard to stand. Um, and um, I can always tell when he's had too much grass because his hair changes texture. It becomes really coarse. Um, and then, you know, it's hard to get a good image. This is one of the few times where I was able to do it, um, where those erectors do weird things. So you have horses that are kind of smooth and then they have one patch of hair that's going in a totally different direction. <laughs> that's an indication of something. That means something is happening there. You know, up to what layer depends on when you feel it. So this horse, if you look at the before, he has these strange kind of wrinkling thing happening. So for him, I needed to treat his pelvis, I needed to treat his lumbar spine, his diaphragm, and his gut to get most of the wrinkling out. That was 60 minutes later. Um, so, you know, when you see things like that, when horses have hives or lumps, bumps, flaky skin, it means something. So rather than just go, what product can I slap on it? Um, I think I'm always encouraging clients to think, well, why is this happening? You know, if you're feeding your horse well and you're taking care of everything, why is this happening? So it, it really is about when you see it. Um, you need to think about the larger picture of why it's happening or what is it indicating. So that's kind of like the buckets of, you know, things that we should look out for. Um, within each of these layers, there are patterns of movement, restriction and compensation. There are basically two patterns and you see these folds, they're like brand new and they're asymmetrical. Okay. So we have natural asymmetry the way the horse is born and developed. So kind of like the genetic load that the horse got. And then we have compensation patterns that can impact natural asymmetry or can just be compensation pattern. And those are the changing things as a result of trauma, injury, repetitive motion, just living. I mean, it happens to us as people. Um, it happens to horses as well. So we need to kind of differentiate, and I think it's important for people to understand that when I come and help a horse, I'm returning it to the natural asymmetry. I'm not going to make it straight. <laughs> you know, I'm helping to balance it out. Um, I have to work with what the body allows, um, but we're returning it to its natural state of being, not making it perfectly symmetrical. So the average horse has a minimum of six patterns, for me, pattern, things that I call patterns, Working at any given time, most have more. All right, is everybody still with us? Okay, so the art of observation, this is where it gets interesting. Um, I'm a believer that um, 
watching horses do their thing without human intervention is actually the most valuable thing you can do. Because when we're not putting pressure on them, when we're not asking them, like when we're out of their bubble, they tend to stand, behave in a way that's more natural. And that's where the information comes in, where you don't even have to touch and you're able to gain information from them. So one of the kind of key thing, the key things to remember are pattern affects posture. So the patterns in the body will affect posture. And there's a big difference between posture and confirmation. Um, and I'm always kind of going, people go, well, that's their confirmation. I'm like, hmm, you know, is it really? And then posture affects the skeleton over time. So if we don't have um, correct care over time, that natural asymmetry and those compensation patterns are going to create an even bigger imbalance. Um, and then this is kind of the fundamental, which is form dictates function. So the, the form of the body dictates the function that the body will do. And in turn, the function that the body is doing or that particular area is doing dictates its shape. And this is really important when it comes to feet. Um, and I'm very lucky to have a really good education from uh, Monique uh, Craig at Epona Mind. And she, you know, we have long discussions about what came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, and so this is kind of, this post, people loved it. And I had a few conversations with different people. So I'll kind of cover all of it so we can kind of get there. Um, feet are suspended from the body, hence the name suspensory ligament. Um, foot orientation is a reflection of patterns in the body. So horses are variable loaders. And initially when I posted this, um, I had, um, you know, different, foot imprint colors for weight. And I've since been educated about the fact that they kind of keep changing that load pattern um, to save their joints. But when they're just standing there um, and you're not interacting with them, with them and you're just leaving them to stand at their own kind of will, the way they stand, the orientation of the feet will give you an indication to what's happening in the body. So if we look at the picture with the tight ventral line, um, the client brought the horse in and just left him there and I was answering a text message or something and I looked up and I went, hey, look at that. <laughs> Took a picture and you can see his front feet are really together. And I missed the point because at some point he was standing there with all four feet on one line, wow. literally, like a rope. And so halfway through the treatment, somebody else pinged me and um, I think my kids, because normally I don't answer, but one of my kids, you know, had a burning question. And I answered and I looked up and this is the way he was standing. So we'd relieve the ventral line kind of tightness to reveal that his real issue, which I know is actually his lumbar. And if you um, look at the way his feet are pointing, I didn't ask him to do anything. He stood like that for a fair amount of time. When I left, it was all straight. But the way that they choose to park their feet can give you a lot of information of what's happening. You know, the feet kind of hang from the body and the fascia, when they stand at rest, they're going to fall into that fascial coil pattern, right? Because that's what fascia does. It kind of coils in. They're going to fall into the most comfortable way. So if their fascial pull is like this, they're going to stay there because that's what's comfortable. It's the least amount of resistance. And so I think it's really important to watch horses do their thing, not ask them to do anything, not ask them to move, just watch them. There's a lot of information there if you're really looking at it. 
and you stop thinking about, you know, what do the muscle look like? Or what does the, just look at the general kind of pattern. And this goes back to that abstract observation is look at what the lines are doing. What are the big lines of the horse doing? It can give you a lot of information. Um, here we have another one. I saw this picture and it was just so obvious to me. I had to use it. Uh, the neck must be aligned with the center of the shoulders, diaphragm and pelvis. Any deviation from this structural relationship means that the whole visceral, musculoskeletal, and myofascial network is out of balance. And so if we look at this horse, again, just standing there minding his business, you know, his feet, his hind feet are pointing in, one, in a different direction than his front. And then he's kind of towed out and his barrel's rotated and we have a short leg and a long leg. And you kind of look at all of that and you go, hmm, got to be kind of hard to move in a balanced fashion forward. But if you observe that and then you get help from your trainer and help from your farrier and your body worker, then you're able to work with that to allow the horse to maybe be a little more straighter, to be a little more coordinated. Because, you know, when your feet are pointing in every direction, you're not going to be coordinated. And so um, those are things that I think if we train our eye, Anybody can see that. I'm not blessed with any gifts that nobody else has. Um, and so that's really what I'm after with this whole thing is I want to teach people to look at a horse and go, I see that. And I'm aware that this means I need help with this or that. Um, and, you know, you can't just do one thing. And we talk about this all the time. And I'm sure we have plenty of people here that I've talked about it. It really is a team effort. you got to change everything. Because even if I come out, it doesn't matter, or you know, a more talented body worker or a super talented farrier, if you don't change everything and work towards the horse, then you can't change anything. All right, so TMJ asymmetries, variations from very slight to very obvious. Um, and I've collected these over a while, and you can see I've kind of lined them up from very, very slight and the gray horse to quite obvious at the other end. Um, and I think it's important that we understand that, you know, this is really something we all look at our horses. And it dawned on me that people weren't looking when I would come out and I said, well, your horse's face is a little asymmetrical and that would reflect to the pelvis and then the way the scapulas move. And they're like, it's asymmetrical. And I pointed out to them and they're like, wow. And these are people that love their horses, take exceedingly good care of their horses and have had them for years and have not noticed. So, um, you know, it's important because remember the brain's there. And so we talked about the brain kind of dictating everything. And I'm going to go more into what all of that means. But even the slightest asymmetry, like we have the gray horse, um, it's very, very slight. But this horse is super mouthy super reactive because he has temporal tantrums um, for various when your temporals are out you become way more sensitive like you were saying Wendy that you know if you have imbalance and you have kind of overstimulation you're more sensitive because you have to work harder at things yeah. and so um, you know he's very very mouthy and uh, and it's a very slight imbalance so well, and, you know, so many people don't uh, realize that their face is asymmetrical oh, until they see the picture. Here, this is one PMJ. Can we see? This is the other. Wow. <laughs> yeah. My face met a pole because of a horse twice. Yeah. And one because of a car, and I have severe stuff. 
but yes. So um, I posted this and um, I loved it because it was a real teaching moment for me and I think for other people. Um, I love watching horses eat. It's fascinating for me where their jaw goes, how much movement there is. So how a horse chews and eats can provide information on hind end locomotion, cervical flexibility, spinal freedom, digestion, temperament, and general well-being. So there is a reason to watch your horses eat. <laughs> and that's just some of the things you can find. The so, size is really relaxing. <laughs> yes, that too. So watching a horse eat is super important. Um, and we can see this fella, who's my new boyfriend. Um, there's a lot of motion on one side and very small motion on the other side. And generally what that means is he's chewing where there's less motion because the mandible, the coronoid process is coming up on the other side, but it's not on the side where everything is clamped and he's working. And so I tried to do this and I hope it works. Um, so again, we see this mare has a very slight asymmetry. We can see how it's reflected in her hind end. Right, and it kind of mirrors. But if you look how she chews, and I did this one in slow-mo, can we see how the lower half of the mandible only comes, if you look at the bottom of the video, it'll only, you can only ever see it on one side. And then if you look at, you know, and it's only on the opposite side of where you have the big motion of the coronoid process. So she's basically chewing on the left. And then yesterday, the dentist lady came out, um, that was great, and she said, oh yeah, she only has, stuff that needs taking off on the side where the bubble's bigger. So it means something. Um, pay attention to it. It can help you solve issues. I think that's kind of where I'm going with all of this. Like everything means something. Pay right. attention to it. So the video's a little bit, a uh, little bit um, st uh, slow and then it's not, it's kind of doing a frame by frame rather than. Oh, okay. Yeah, but well, that's okay. I'm so could you just kind of briefly like you've got the lines there, but just describe what you see in her face. Okay. So if we look at her face, right, and it's a little hard to see, but her right eye is actually further back and a little kind of higher up and her left eye is further forward, right? Yep. And then if you look at her hind end, her sacrum, right, pulls towards that eye that is more forward. So the sacrum is oriented. Um, and I'll explain later why, like the eye that's more forward. And if you look how she chews, um, I don't know if it'll work again, but we can't see it, I guess. Oh, oh I saw your pointer just now. Your pointer. Wait, right. what happened? Okay. No, oh, there we go. You saw my pointer? Oh, there we yeah, go. Yeah, now it's working. So if you look how she chews here, we can't see it because I guess it's too slow. You can see that there is a correlation between the strong chewing side the opposite or the cross chain big hind, right? And where there's more motion and less motion in those temporals. So that's kind of what I'm trying to show here. And maybe I had to set it up a little differently. No, it's okay. That's, um, that's what I'm trying to explain to people that the side that chews more, right? Yep. Is going to have more muscle tension. So the jaw is gonna go, I chew more here. Right. creating a gap here between, right? So the mandible is going to hang that way and the pelvis is going to do the same orientation. As we go through it, I'm going to explain it in a more concise way, but there is a direct correlation. And so yet again, reason to look at why your horses chew is it can tell you about hind end freedom. 
And, yeah. you know, if you're struggling with hind end motion, some of that might have to do actually with the front and not the hind. Right. But, um, oh, there we go. Oh, there it goes. Yeah. And so if you see, there's more chewing on the left, which is the bigger hind than there is on the right. Got it. Okay. Because she's actually right front dominant. So the left hind is bigger and she chews more on that side because that's how it goes with the So the temporal, the TMJ and the hips are always connected. There's always a play between them some way or another. Okay. All right. So um, the art of seeing patterns. Okay. The TMJ can be an indicator of natural asymmetry, the pattern the horse was born with. The TMJ is the best place to look for convergence of all the layers and patterns. So it's a little complex, but we can kind of see an indication of all the dolls when we look at the TMJ. Um, you know, uh, natural asymmetry can be more pronounced over time uh, and lack of physical support. So let me explain a little about this. So when we look at the TMJ, you know, we can see that asymmetry, you know, and if you look at Corrado here, you can see he has quite significant asymmetry um, and that will affect you know, the brain, it'll affect the skeletal structure further down because I always tell people TMJs is like the beginning of the supermarket list. So, <laughs> you know, everything only costs three or four bucks, but by the end you're paying $150. And so this is kind of what happens with this asymmetry down the spine. And so, you know, we can see a lot of horses that I meet have a lot of swelling around their mandible and hyoid. And if you remember the visceral picture, the hyoid kind of indicates what's happening with all those internal organs. And so that poofiness can let you know, you know, is the horse not processing properly? Do we have kind of lymph drainage that's stuck? You know, there's a whole, there's things that you can see if, you look at the face, you kind of get a good snapshot of everything that's going on. So and like essentially, if you look at the TMJ hyoid area and facial asymmetry, you've got a map to the whole body. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly where I'm going. And I'll explain how that works. Awesome. That's exactly what it is. Um, and we need to understand that the natural asymmetry is a starting point. But if we don't have the support in terms of, um, you know, dental, good training, uh, good feet, physical support, then that's going to become more and more pronounced over time. So right. time is the factor in all of this as well. It's not just, you know, the asymmetry and the compensation. Right. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit. Remember, we talked about kind of the brain taking over. I'm going to gloss over this really fast because it's really complex. I'm just going to give you the meat and potatoes of it. So this is Corrado, the horse that was before. And if you can see how his jaw meets, this is the before cranial cycle. And he had, I think, 40 minutes of cranial cycle therapy. And then we have after. So when I only treat his head, his body does all the stuff that it normally does when I have to treat the whole body. So shortcut. <laughs> um, so the stomatic, so let's start, I kind of put this on backwards. So there is a system that dictates how the spine works. Like I said, that supermarket list, which is the craniocervical mandibular system. And it's basically how the skull meets the spine, how the jaw articulates with the skull, it attaches, you know, the hyoid is part of that as well. And that dictates how our spine is in space because this is where all that sensory information happens. And the stomatognathic is part of that. And 
what I always tell people is when they go, well, I don't understand how that works. I go, okay, if you were in a room without sound and without light, you could still walk. Yeah. Right. And so that's because where your teeth meet, it gives the brain a kind of, it's something when I started reading about this, it blew my mind that the jaw is actually a support for the skull. And even though it moves and it has a hinge, it provides some sort of support for the skull. And so this is, I guess they call it uh, in human dentistry, if you're chewing on one side, which most of us do, um, you create a gap where you, the dental arcades, which is what our teeth are, those are dental arcades, don't meet. And so there's no support for the skull. And so, hang on my cat. Sorry. Okay. There's no support for the skull. And so the skull starts to sink where there's no support and you get that rotation. That's kind of the meat and potatoes of it. Um, and I love the little illustration of the two men. I think it makes it easier to understand what I'm talking about. I don't know, does that help, Wendy? Well, um, do, do me a favor and define stomato. Oh, so a stomatognathic system, basically, um, if you read about it, and it's mainly for people, it's very hard to find anything with it, with horses in regard, is um, it's your dental arcade, so your teeth, um, your TMJ mandible, um, your tongue, your salivatory glands, um, all of that is considered the stomatognathic system. Great. And so, you know, what, if I was to distill what you're saying right now is, that the organization and alignment of the jaw at, relates to the carriage of the head and that whole system organizes us in space. And so if something is out, in other words, out meaning out uh, asymmetrical to a degree that's beyond say what our natural asymmetry is, it's gonna be reflected throughout the entire system and yes. cause some problems. Yes, absolutely. And so, so this is why dentistry is so important. Right. And we're, we're always managing the asymmetry that we all have, because if we don't kind of keep it in check, that asymmetry can um, sort of exacerbate, become more and start throwing other systems out. But in addition to that, any kind of acute um, illness or injury, um, any, anything down the line that gets out of balance, like feet is going to be reflected back. So in a way, this is kind of a, an area that if we kind of get a handle on this and keep this in mind, the whole head and, head and upper neck, then we can see the reflection of that through the whole system. And we can manage a lot of it, not all of it, mm -hmm. but a lot of it from that system. Right. And, and see when things are starting, like if we watch the chewing of our horse, we can see, oh, wait a second, suddenly he's chewing in a manner that's different. I wonder if he's got a bad tooth. That's going right. to throw it out. And then he's got a hind end problem. Right. And so I think the way I kind of always think of this is we're changing a lot of the input into the brain. Um, and this system or how, you know, what happens here is a little bit of an indication of what the brain is putting back out. Right. And so if we can understand what the brain is putting out, we can go, hmm, this is where we need support because that's what the brain thinks is happening. Right. And, and so you know, it, it's, it's really complex and I'm still reading about it and learning about it. And, oh you know, yeah. I never thought I'd spend so much time reading about teeth and stuff like yeah. that, but it's fascinating.
fascinating. You know, I had I had to have braces quite a few years ago, and in the result of getting the braces, I stopped using my jaw properly. And I was teaching a clinic, and this woman who knows all about this saw me, and she's like, "Oh, you got to start doing these certain exercises because you're, you know, it was affecting everything in my body because I wasn't closing my jaw, and my teeth weren't meeting." Yeah don't meet properly it causes a chain reaction through the whole system and is exactly right exactly. So, and i'm going to go into that and give yeah. visuals that make it easier to understand this is just the gross concept so i guess the takeaway is your teeth affect everything make sure you take care of your teeth yeah no <laughs> okay. it's true it's really true all right um, and so here, how does spinal rotation happen? Because that's basically what happens through that output. There is spinal rotation. And again, it relates to this, where we were talking about how if your head's crooked, your body is going to, the brain is going to tell your body to kind of reorient so that you're level. So this is the skeleton. Remember, I showed you the pelvis and the femur. This is the skull. And we can see that, you know, the right eye is further back and lower and then the front eye is further forward and higher and this is actually the most common pattern I see and if you look at the bottom of that you can see the corner of the incisor from the mandible sticking out because this horse only chewed on one side and so if we look at the middle picture which is the back of the skull we can see those occipital condyles at the bottom and they're kind of the temporals which meet the occiput kind of dictates how that occiput sits. So the way I do it is, I don't know if they can see me, Wendy. Uh, maybe unshare your screen. Um, uh -huh. You can do it. I know you can. Just go to the, go to the top. Wait, wait. You should have a green bar at the top. Yeah. And wait, it, No, there. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. I don't know why the clicker, there. Wait, it's not showing. I can see uh, the bar, but I can't see my clicker. Oh, because you've got your you've got your so, full screen on your slideshow. So do I just go to that green thing? Where are we? Yeah, go up. No go sharing. Up. I tried. You know what? We're just going to try and explain it. So okay. otherwise, we're going to lose more time fussing <laughs> with it. So basically, if you think if you have one occipital condyle right that is higher and further forward, and one occipital condyle that's lower and further back, that's your plugs. Your plugs are coming in one further forward and back and so they're coming in unevenly right and if you look at the picture below that that's your atlas and you see those kind of articular surfaces that's where those condyles plug into so you can understand if you have this that it would be pushed back and the top one would rotate it it just has to happen that way yeah right? and so you get when you look at this uh the back of the skull where the atlas and the axis are and it's very slight. And this is where your supermarket list comes back in again. It's a very slight rotation. It's a very slight asymmetry, but it will lock one condyle. And we know that with horses, the smaller the movement, um, the more important it is. Yep. <laughs> and so we essentially lock that atlas. And then because the axis kind of swings round in, that, uh, it's in its articulation with the atlas, it'll swing out to the side and it'll start this kind of side bend of the cervical spine. And that's where your crookedness or your essential curve starts. So do you think I can move on? Yeah, but it's really interesting because you can definitely see how the, the atlanto-occipital joint and then it throws C2 off. 
Well, and you can see, look at all the osseous changes here on the axis, where obviously it was fighting right. <laughs> to do what the horses need. And if you look in the actual um, uh, articular surface in the atlas, you can see that hole there. That's not a foramen. That's from oh. stress. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what does that look like? So I've kind of tried to put it in a way that would make it easier for people to grasp the bigger picture. Yep. So um, a TMJ pattern expressed uh, throughout the body. So I've found um, six that I've seen. Um, this is the most common one. The other ones I've only seen a couple of times and I'm not even sure. So I, I kind of, I'm on this journey because Monique has gotten me to document my stuff. <laughs> so I'm on this journey of trying to document pictures and maps and trying to put this in a way that would make it easier for people to understand. So each pattern is impacted by the horse's way of life. So this is the underlying. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happens to the horse that's going to change it, but this is the underlying. So the most common pattern is the left TMJ is rostral and cradial. So basically it's higher and more forward. And the right TMJ is ventral caudal. So it's lower and further back. The atlas has that left rotation. The cervical spine has that kind of left bend. The right front uh, will have a bigger shoulder and foot. The left, will, the left front will have a smaller shoulder. It'll be more proximal to the body with a smaller different shaped foot. And then the barrel rotates because as you see, the spine kind of falls to the right because they're basically kind of doing this the, the cervical spine rotates to the right, but the barrel will rotate out to the left, like that horse that I showed that its barrel was on its side. Yeah. Um, and then the lumbar gets some sort of side bend depending on compensation patterns. The sacrum will mirror the atlas. It always does. The pelvis will mirror the TMJ. Um, generally with these horses, the right stifle, left hook, if there's no other compensation patterns, which is very rare, but generally the right stifle and left hook will have more issues simply because of that long leg, short leg, and the tail will be to the left. Keep going. I have to run out and catch the UPS man. <laughs> okay. So that's sort of the general pattern of this. And we can see, you know, in the drawing, how that works. And that shoulder has to come forward and be more in front simply because the spine bends that way, you're going to get that rotation. So that's the most common pattern I see. Um, I think it's important for me to mention so that you don't all run out and see a crooked horse and go, oh my god, my horse is crooked, I need one. Okay, so um, this is a horse with a high degree of natural asymmetry. Um, he's also had teeth removed, which has made it even harder to keep him in balance. But here he is doing his thing. So we're all asymmetrical. We're all a little crooked. And that's just how nature intended us to be. Um, and it's not, this is for you to pay attention to rather than think that your horse is broken. It just means this is my underlying pattern. What can I do to support it? And there's plenty of physical exercise that can be done, which Wendy, it's more your realm of um, training that can be done for both rider and horse to help balance out some of this asymmetry. So that was important to say. Okay. Yep, I'm National back. lines. This is what everybody's been like. When is she going to get there? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> fascia lines can be divided into layers. So remember our dolls? 
Um, knowing what each fascia line encompasses within the layer helps us see the pattern. So I kind of try and, and, you know, a lot of times you have like the image that I have on where you see all these fascia lines and it's all great, but that's not really how they work. You know, it's kind of hard to translate that and go back to what I was saying, which is we need to think of them as more three-dimensional. So I've attempted to do a little bit of that. I hope it translates. It's, I'm still trying to figure out how to help people understand the dolls in 3D or the horse in 3D and how each fascia layer kind of goes into that. Um, so this was the sneak peek shot. Um, and so we have our mythical unicorn, our symmetrical horse um, that I've not met one yet. And then we have, um, you know, this dominant pattern or this asymmetry of, that we were talking about. And most of these are right front dominant horses. And I've just added two lines to give you an idea of what happens. And the dorsal line goes all the way to the end of the hind foot. But I wanted to give you um, a, a dorsal view so you could have a, a better visual. So if we look at that, we just have the dorsal superficial line, which does a lot of the back muscles. So if you think about those spinal erector muscles, look what they're doing. <laughs> you know, how crooked they have to be if the horse has that wave. And then I put in one of the front limb retraction lines and you can see how, you know, that would change as well in terms of range of motion for each scapula. And what does that mean in terms of saddle? What does that mean if you're going left or right? Um, you know, those are all things that when you take that into ridden work, you start going, hmm, <laughs> we might have a problem. And this is all, again, I'm really after is for people to kind of learn to observe these things. One of the things I do with my clients all the time is I say to them, okay, well, let's look at scapular orientation. And they put one arm on one scapula and one arm on the other scapula spine. And we have these kind of, you know, where there are ones in front, ones behind, ones like this, ones like that. Um, it creates issues. And so once we're aware of that, we can maybe start thinking about um, supporting the horse through um, exercise, feet, tack. Um, a lot of times people are just as crooked, you know, yeah. it's great to get your horse help, but if you don't get help for yourself, then you're only doing half the work. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've been really bad when I've had because my spine is all kinds of crooked because I'm like this. And so when I'm really bad, I won't get on and ride because I feel bad. I know that whatever is happening with me is going to translate into the horse. And they're already working hard on keeping their balance. So now they're going to have to add your imbalance to the position and it becomes stressful. So, you know, if we add, I just added two fascia lines because I think Otherwise, it would be overwhelming. But if you look at the horse without the skeleton, if you go out there and look at horses and that kind of weird shape, you're going to see that there's a lot out there like that. Right. Okay, so those, this was more of a, um, a natural asymmetry pattern. So all horses are going to have one way of this. That's how they are in the world. But I wanted to talk about something that, you know, everybody's concerned with because it impacts the hind end locomotion. That's restriction um, in the pelvis. And again, you know, a lot of them stand like that because they're trying to relieve that tension. And so if you see your horse stand like that, you probably have 
some form of issue, and they can be many, you know, um, there's endless issues of what can happen in the pelvis. Uh, I'm only going to look at one today that applies to all horses, but um, it's really important. Like this is an indicator. You don't need to be um, a body worker. You don't need to have any special knowledge. You see a horse standing like that and they do it a lot. It's a red flag. Hey, we have some groin, ventral line, pelvic lumbar issues that maybe need addressing. So we're going to talk about sex. <laughs> um, so I'm just, again, these are, it's a really complex thing and I just want to give people a kind of concept. So I have here, I did two dorsal views again. So the blue, I've gone very generic. So the blue is like the gel scar and we can see how, you know, we have a couple of lines I've put in the, um, I put in the dorsal line, I put in the front limb retraction line and I think this is the spiral line I put in. Um, yeah. yeah, and so I was a lateral line. I think it might, I can't remember which one it was. But um, so we can see how that would change things in addition to the crookedness. And then for the mare, I didn't even add that because that makes it really crazy. But you can see how an ovary issue would start affecting these lines and creating a discomfort. So how does all that connect? Um, we can look at the mare first because that's maybe a little easier. If you look at the bottom uh, left-hand corner, um, if you look at all the fascia that suspends the uterus and then you have that little ovary there at the top, it all goes to the back muscle, it affects the kidney, it affects the iliacus, the psoas. You start thinking about you know, if that's irritated, if the mare has a big follicle or she's in season and it starts to pull on all of that and clamp all that down because ew, and you know, guys might not know, but all women know, um, it's not fun. And then recently I found out, I think last year, um, somebody from the Vlugen Institute posted this awesome thing where uh, the vet was explaining that I guess the ovaries kind of rotate up when whichever ovary is ovulating, it rotates up while it's ovulating and then it has to unfurl and hang back down. Well, if you're being ridden, the likelihood of it unfurling and coming back down is probably quite small. And so now you're having something that's doing this all the time while you're moving and you wonder why they get marish. Well, and you can have a follicle that's the size of a grapefruit. Right. And so that's the other thing I learned, I think about two years ago, a friend of mine had a mare who was just really bad and they ultrasounded her and you know she was ovulating like whale sized follicles and so that explains some of that um, but if you look at where it is and what it connects to and all that fascia there you start to understand how that would restrict a lot of movement and you know every time that leg is engaged every time those muscles are engaged with every stride it would ding that bell um, for lack of uh, you know better way of putting it. And then if we look at the dudes, the dudes are a little harder. Um, so we have the picture of the cult. Um, you know, kid, the, the testicles start behind the kidneys. So they have all that fascial attachment to that lumbar spine and around the kidney. And then they come down through something called the inguinal canal. If you look at the stallion picture or at the inguinal ring picture, it's basically an opening between the abdominal muscles that allows for it to kind of work its way down. 
Um, and there is a deep inguinal ring and there's a superficial inguinal ring. And you can see that the fasciata lata kind of comes into that and that affects our stifle. And so when the testicles work their way down and, you know, somebody gets the horse and goes, I don't want those. Um, I think we've all seen castrations. They kind of knock them out. They tie that leg up. So they're already creating fascial tension and pull. And then they cut open the sac, they pull out those testicles and they create that tension. So they pull everything out, they clamp it, right? Then they cut it and then they let go. So the way I always tell people is if you take cling film and you pull it really, 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 really tight and then you let go, what happens? That's kind of what's happening in there. So, and if you think that that can happen all the way back up to the kidneys, and affect all those abdominal muscles, well, now you're really restricting any kind of movement that's happening there. You're restricting blood supply, you're restricting so many things that you can really have an issue. So to make it a little easier to understand, I've done a lateral view. So I like to think of fascial lines. If you look at the left-hand one, that's your superficial dorsal and ventral line. So when we have muscles and we know what they're doing, it's a little easier for us to understand how it's impacted. And then if you look at the drawing on the right, um, I've added um, the internal organs and I've added the psoas, which is always affected by these things and the kidney. And then we have that gel scar in the light blue. And then I added the superficial dorsal line, superficial ventral line, and then the deep dorsal and deep ventral. And you can see how that gel scar kind of captures all of that. Um, and you start to think, wow, there's no, nothing coming through from the hind end to the front. And there's certainly a lot of pull on the front. And so, you know, if you already have a horse that's working with asymmetries and now you add that, um, it's always quite surprising that they can still function <laughs> and they can still go out and do what we ask them to do uh, to the best of their ability. So, you know, I'm not saying don't ride and I'm not saying, um, you know, that all these things are the end of the world. All I'm saying is it's an awareness um, so that you can get help, something to consider. Um, and you can see this in their movement. You know, I've, I've met a lot of horses that People say, oh, you know, they've had this treatment, they've had that treatment, you know, we've got new shoes, new saddle, and the horse is walking away from me and the pelvis is only doing this. Yep. It's only going in one direction. I'm like, okay, so we have still an issue. Um, and even in like top level dressage horses, I don't look at a lot of the equitation because mine isn't fabulous. I just look at the horse move and I'm like, and I think that's what I'm trying to convey with this is, step back and look abstract. Don't look so much at the small things, look abstract. What are the big, what is the big motion doing? What are the lines doing? Um, and that can really give you an indication to some of what's going on in the body and where you might need to support the horse. Um, and so here is my last little exercise for you guys. So I love this mare, she's awesome. Um, and if you look at the picture where I've not done anything to, and you just kind of let your eye roam over that after all the information I've given you and see what you see. Uh, and I've put a few arrows in of how my eye follows the curve of things and places where my eye gets stuck. And you can see that she's kind of bent to the left. 
Yep. And, you know, um, like everything, like her circles are kind of working against each other. You know, you can see the orientation of her feet. And she was just standing there doing her thing. Um, again, you know, she's being ridden. She's had every, she's got the best feet, the best care. Um, but this is just part of who she is. So the work that she needs is to be able to help her be maybe a little less lefty and a little more straight. Um, and so you can see it. I think this is, again, what I'm trying to do here is I'm just trying to raise awareness of like really looking at the horse and really seeing what is there rather than considering, you know, is the back up? Do we have all that? Is step a, step, take a step away and just look at, if you look at the horse and follow it with your eyes, where are you getting stuck? Um, where are the lines leading you? Um, you know, if you look at it abstract, you know, are all four feet facing the same way? <laughs> Just, these are really simple things. How is my horse eating? Um, they're, they're really simple things where you don't need to have um, a very, you know, educated background or read a lot of anatomy. They're just kind of things that you can see where you can then say, okay, I might want to get my horse a little help. So, last slide. We made it. Um, <laughs> So without learning to turn off the part of your brain that identifies objects, people can only see icons of objects rather than the object themselves. See the horse, not the icon. And so um, I think that's really what it comes down to. It's my biggest passion is to let horse owners see what I see so that they can help their horses and decide how to proceed with that. Um, I think more than anything, that's probably the most valuable tool because we don't all know how to test joints. We might not all have sensitive enough hands to feel fascia. We don't all have the anatomical knowledge, but we all have eyes <laughs> and uh, we can all learn how to use them um, to help our horses do better. That's, that's awesome. And, and I, you know, for me, the takeaway is that you have some really simple things that people can start with. And I, I think the simplest one is if they just take a picture of their horse and then look at the direction the feet are pointing. That one is so Yeah, simple. so like, oh, let me do this slide again so people can understand what you're talking about. There, this slide you mean, yeah. Yeah, um, because that's like you can see if you just think about the middle of the foot and then drawing the arrow in the direction that the foot is pointing, Th those are that's something really simple and easy that we can do and and looking to see like the foot placements i really like your little hooves and that really was one of the things that caught my eye uh in your posts because th if we think about a table that doesn't have the four legs squarely underneath it then there's going to be an effect from that in terms of the weight load all the way through the system and, and yeah you're not going to tip the waitress yeah, exactly. <laughs> Often if we can find one place to, to start our, our investigation, we'll start to see how the other things, they appear because we see this one thing. In other words, if we see this, that just one foot is pointing in a different direction, we'll be able to start looking up the leg and see, well, wait a second, the two hocks are also in a different direction. The two right. cycles are in a different direction. Or if we, the face, I think, is one that's so easy. And, you know, I've, I've often done this little experiment with people, but the simple way to relate to the face is when we see 
photographs of ourselves, we don't like it because we're seeing our face in the opposite direction. Right. And it's funny that you say that because actually one of the tricks in art school when you paint portraits and they're not quite right, as in you didn't get it, is you take a mirror and you look at the portrait in the mirror and all of a sudden all those little things that are wrong that make the difference between it looks like the person and it doesn't look like the person really stand out. And this is what I think I was trying to say where people don't see like a camera. Right. Um, and then we had a, a good question that, um, you know, we've obviously talked about that if you start from the, the head and the, um, TMJ in that area that we can affect the body, but we can also then, the question is, can we also do that in reverse? In other words, if you improve the feet, is that going to improve the head and neck? Um, yes and no. <laughs> so what we can control, um, we can change the input into the brain in the hope that I guess the brain changes the output. That's basically what it means for me. And I might be wrong, but that's kind of how I understand it, that everything that we're doing affects the input into the brain um, uh, in the hopes that the brain does a better computing and goes, oh, I don't need to support this limb so much, or you know, this has a better loading pattern now if it comes to feet, or it has a better orientation, it's more comfortable, it doesn't hurt, so I can put it down differently. Right. So I think that's the way to think about it. Yes, we can change, but what we really need to think of is all those changes. And, you know, for me, it's always amazing when I hang out at Epona and they do their farrier days, the changes in the bones are almost instant. But the, you know, how long does it take for the brain to assimilate those changes is a different matter. How long does it take for that horse to stop loading the same way, even though you've made it more comfortable? Um, that's a different matter. And so, yes, we can change from the feet, but we have to check that what the input that we've changed is reflected in the output. Right. And um, somebody just, just brought up the idea of surefoot, and this is where... Um, the surefoot pads can really help because the horse can explore the sensory in and output yes. by uh, being on the pads. And you see that they explore the input that they get from the pads and then the output in response to the pads when you take them for a walk or when you come off or in terms of the load. And so um, in some ways, surefoot seems to be able to help reset the nervous system to be able to absorb those changes that we've seen in the when they make them in the feet. Yeah. And so it really is, I think everything we do, otherwise I wouldn't do what I do. But right. it is always to um, create enough release and enough freedom of movement or enough support for the body so that the input into the brain says, this is simple now. I can do this in space. And so the brain can go, okay, well then I can be straighter in space. Right. <laughs> That's sort of how we need to think about it. Um, you know, so a lot of times, this is why I said at the beginning, we can't just change the feet or just change dentist or just change saddle, because that's just a small component of all the information that's going into the brain. Right. And, and part of the key is to find the thing that's going to be sort of the, uh, the, I always look for what's the one thing that's going to make the greatest amount of difference to the entire system because it's kind of the key. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and you can, because you can, and I see people, they do a lot of things for their horses and they're really, you know, they want to make sure that they get everything right. But sometimes if you don't kind of get the, the, the root of it, then it, it keeps pulling everything out of, out of balance. But when you find the root of it, it shifts everything. Right. And, you know, sometimes the root is, so, you know, this, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that you kind of learn as you go, uh, when I first started to learn, I used to text Dr. Sandra Hallertz all sorts of weird stuff. Like, I don't know, I, I really felt like I had oven mittens, that I had all the dolls in my hand and I couldn't differentiate on what doll I was when I was treating. And that's a fine tuning thing that takes time. Um, so is kind of finding that center that is the, the main issue or the center of the spider web, um, if you want, is it takes time to sift through all those dolls and find out where in all of those is the issue. And sometimes, you know, it, it's interesting for me, you think you found it and you're still not there. And it, it's, it's a process because yeah, absolutely. You know, um, soundness is a moment in time. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, what is good today might not be good tomorrow and what is not good today might be awesome tomorrow. So it, we're living creatures and um, balance is a moving target. And, you know, we're always trying to, you know, it's like it was a very interesting conversation. One of the posts I did um, again. She's such a smart lady. She always corrects me. Uh, Dr. Sandra Hallett, you know, I said, oh, we're looking for homeostasis. And she went, no, 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 no. We're looking for allostasis. And it's, it is true. Okay, um, so you, know, you have to define allostasis for us. Okay, so I guess homeostasis is like standing still, but we're living. Things are constantly moving. So allostasis is that change for the balance, to maintain that balance. The body is always trying to maintain a balance because things are always moving. Right. Right, we're breathing, the blood's moving, we're moving. So it's never a, uh, there's never a point of standstill. And so I think it's important to remember that when we go out and we work with our horses, they have bad days like us. <laughs> you know, yeah. they have days where their bodies are more in sync and less in sync. And so those are all things to consider. You know, I, I think you bring up a really good point because I, I always think of it as, you know, we, we want to get closer and closer to the middle, but you never actually stop in the middle. If you stop in the middle, you're going to be dead. Right. <laughs> but you want to see if the oscillations can be less and less extreme. Yes. And I think, you know, um, that's something uh, as a therapist, you always um, have to remind yourself that you're not fixing. We're facilitating a return to balance. We're not fixing. I'm not making the horse go better. Uh, I'm facilitating the freedom that the body is allowing me to facilitate so that the horse can have a more free range of motion. But um, so, and again, that's also down to the day. I have days where I come and the treatment is phenomenal, where the, you know, the body's ready. Like the, I call it the unicorn moment. The stars align. Everything's ready. The horse is just like, you can go there today. You can get it. And I do. And it's like, oh, uh, and I have days where I show up and they're like, don't touch me. No, we're not doing that today. <laughs> I can certainly relate to that. <laughs> um, we did have a question about if you see issues with horses living in stalls versus a natural environment. And I, and I just want to um, uh, put my two cents in here that, okay. um, you know, we, we all live in different environments and it's, 
it's not so much that, yes, in an ideal world, I think we'd love to have all the horses in a more natural environment, but there are a lot of places where that's not really possible. I mean, if it was, if, if we said that they have to, then we wouldn't have the horses. Right. And and so that's always the case. Like, you know, I think the more people learn about horses, they're like, should we not ride horses? But if we didn't ride them, we wouldn't need to have them. So I'm not, you know, I understand that there are limitations. I live in the Bay Area. More and more um, open spaces are being closed to build houses. Um, there's very few horse ranches left and the horses ranches that are left are generally smaller paddocks. Um, I think the way I always look at it is I say to people, consider the fact that you've taken away your, all your horse's fundamental choices. So movement, when to eat and company, you've taken that away. So, you know, try and make up for it where you can. Right. Um, and make the best of a situation. So maybe, I don't know, if you, I know a lot of people go, that most of my clients that have horses in smaller paddocks, they're up at the barn once a day and grant you a 45 minute walk around the barn and to the pond and back doesn't fix that, but it's better than nothing. Right. Um, and I think that there's a, such a value in having the horses in our lives that we both benefit from. I actually right. believe that, that the horses benefit from interacting with us, that you have to take sort of the environments and then make the best of them. Right, and absolutely agree. You know, and I think um, horses are incredibly forgiving. And so if we offer them, um, I have a very good friend, um, Julia Orth, who does a whole bunch of clicker training and working with horses through choice and through allowing them to kind of have a moment to say, uh, give me a minute. Okay, now you may. And so when you allow them small choices, they're a lot more amenable to the things that they don't get a say about. So right. I and think that's I the balance. Lucinda made a very good point that no matter what you're doing, if you do it with intention, if, even if it's like, we're gonna walk over to this tree or walk over to this post, if you do it with intention, the horse will do it with intention with you. Um, right. And so that's the being present and having intention is so Absolutely. much with the horses, yeah. I well, couldn't agree more. This has been a fabulous, we've gotten a lot of comments, people have really, really enjoyed your, your talk. Yay! And really, really fun. I think it's given us all a lot to think about. And more importantly, it's given us some tools to look at our horses a little bit differently so that we can start to see these patterns ourselves. And that's the key. If we can see these patterns early on, we can, we can do things, different exercises, and you know, having somebody come in and help us, part of the team, to make sure that they don't get so out of balance right. that they're suffering later. And, um, and it's been great. It's been a really, uh, really fun. So I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. And thank you everybody who's, who's joined us and everybody on Facebook who's watched us Facebook Live. And just remember that you can find this and all the other webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. Um, we'll get this posted up probably by the end of the day today. And tomorrow we have Lauren Harmon at six o'clock and we're gonna talk more about fascia because fascia is fascinating and I don't think we can ever talk enough about that. Um, and so it's just been a pleasure and thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to have a platform to share some of my uh, crazy observations. Yep. And if they want to find more about uh, your your uh, your information, where where can they find you on Facebook? 
So they can find me at uh, Tammy El Kayam Equine Bodywork on Facebook or at El Kayam Equine Therapy. Um, I have a web page. I'm working on putting all this together in a book so that people can go out to the barn and use it. Um, it's really challenging because I'm a picture girl, not a word girl, but we'll get there. Um, but yeah, on Facebook, I put up stuff all the time. You know, if something happens often enough, I draw a picture, write a little bit about it, put it up. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for using your artistic talents to help us horse people understand our horses better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Take care. Bye, Bye -bye. everybody. Okay.